Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the January 8th, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. 1.4 million Floridians are going back to the polls. It's going to be a little bit of a kerfuffle because the governor doesn't want them to vote, but they're going to be re-enfranchised after that amazing turnout on the midterm elections. Over 60% Floridians approve that measure. And I tell you, governing looks a whole lot different with this intentional, accessible, accountable so far members of elected office. Uh, mythology simply has a lower stock value. Article 5, uh, Convention Watch. I'm not seeing any new late postings, but I am finding out that most of you have no idea what Article 5 is. So please look it up because there are some strategic movements underway to get all the states a sufficient number to ratify the Article 5 so that the Constitution gets popped wide open. Watch your backs all. So uh, then today, let's go on and talk about my first guest is a respected member in the green chemistry community, Martin Mulvihill, who heads up Safer Made, an organization keenly interested in what goes on into the products we literally consume. Then in the segment, John Spiek, director, chief curator of the Grand Central Art Center in beautiful downtown Santa Ana, has compelling installations, events, and programs to bring to our attention. We'll be right back after a short station break. Happy New Year, by the way. Welcome back to the show, everybody. My first guest today is Martin Mulvey Hill. He's co-founder and managing partner at Safer Made. I had the privilege of taking in his edifying talk last fall at Distinctive Voices series at UCI's Beckman Center. The title of his lecture being Chemistry, Even New Parents Will Love. We all loved it, actually, tell you the truth. Safer Made, the focus of this interview, is a mission-driven venture capital fund investing companies and technologies that reduce human exposure to harmful chemicals. Marty is also a researcher and advisor at the Berkeley Center for Green Chemistry, which he helped create and where he previously served as the initial executive director. Marty Mulvihill completed his BA in chemistry at Reed College, which distinguishes with me, I'm the Reed people stand apart, and his PhD from the University of California, Berkeley in chemistry and nanoscience. Marty's research and work is focused on developing technologies that help provide access to clean drinking water and the creation of safer chemicals and materials based on biological feedstocks. Important distinction. He has a number of publications and patents related to the detection of arsenic in drinking water, and he has developed safer chemicals and materials for the personal care, construction, electronics, and textile industry, something we're using all every minute of our lives, waking and not waking. We'll do all we can in this brief time together to improve literacy of consumers and any avenues of effective activism. Martin, I believe, comes to us, do you not, today from Berkeley, California? That's correct, Claudia. Well, well Martin Mulvihill, welcome to Ask a Leader. Thank you. Thank you for having me this morning. Good morning. And so let's talk about the origins and the charter. What Safer Made is set out to do and how you got to this point where you are now. <laughs> Absolutely. I really, as you pointed out in the introduction, I started as a chemist. A chemist who loves chemistry because, as you said, it's all around us. Chemistry is what makes up the matter that we interact with every day. If you can touch it, smell it, see it, it's made out of chemicals and materials. And those chemicals and materials, as I've, I've learned in my journey, can either be relatively benign or they can have some harmful side effects. And so... As I was progressing through my education as a chemist, I began to realize that it was important to ask the question, where are these feedstocks coming from? What sort of chemistry are we making? And how does it end up in our daily lives? 
because when we look at changes in chronic disease burden, when we look at uh, the effect of persistent chemicals in the environment, both historically and in the modern world, we know that they have a significant impact on environmental health and human health. And so I always thought it would be a natural thing for chemists to be interested in. And luckily, while I was at Berkeley, I, I found colleagues in the School of Public Health, in the College of Natural Resources, and in the engineering school who agreed with me. And we began to bring that perspective into the curriculum at UC Berkeley. We began to start teaching chemists not only how to make new chemicals, which has always been uh, the purview of a chemistry education, how do you make things, uh, but also what were the impacts of those things that you were making and how could you think from the very beginning, from first principles, how to design chemicals that are safer for human health and the environment. Well, that's really how I got started. Marty, that's a huge takeaway that every physical science reacher needs to buddy up with the business, a public health research. They got to they got to do this in groups. There's no the the silo thing is is gone. Gone with the wind. It's gone. It was it's 20 it's 1999. It's over. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I think that that is the the key skill. We now live in an information age where Getting information is easy, but processing it is hard. And to effectively look at complex problems like the fate of chemicals in the environment, you need to be humble and need to recognize that you're going to have to draw on expertise outside of your own. Well, is your model of how you proceeded with Safer Made with this interdisciplinary approach, is it, are your colleagues catching on? Are you yourself witnessing where people are doing things differently? They're moving on it in a whole different way with more people accompanying them. Yeah, I think we're seeing more and more. Academia is sometimes a slow mover, but we're seeing more and more, especially amongst the students, amongst the young entrepreneurs that we work with at Safer Made, and amongst the leading businesses that we work with, a recognition that uh, they need to get smart about the chemistry that they're using. They need to think about how to work across traditional silos, um, and they need to think about what is the end state we want to create, what are the goals we're working towards, and not worry about who's whose bucket that falls into, but how we can work together to get there. Well, there's sufficient amount of urgency out there that should be able to create enough incentive for rethinking how the research proceeds, I guess. <laughs> All I can do is sort of keep it together sometimes when I think of what's ahead of us. Well, so, as you say, we need safer chemicals. So what, we've got a regulatory sort of deficit going on. Do you want to talk about what's involved there? And, and in the talk that you gave us at the Beckman Center, you were talking about there's a dis difference in how the Europeans are handling this. So what, what are we facing here in the U.S.? And what might we uh, look? It may be a cultural difference in wh what the Europeans' approach is to regulation. But what, where, where are we at this point in 2019, early on? Yeah, so when it comes to the chemicals that we put in our daily... Uh, products. You know, so your personal care items, your furniture, your carpeting, your clothing, all of those sort of things fall under the EPA, Toxic Substance Control Act. And when it was passed, there was basically an assumption of innocence until proven guilty, that chemicals, by and large, if you weren't going to eat them, weren't going to be dangerous. And the reality is, in the intervening 50 or 60 years, we've learned that, in fact, Chemicals from our environment are in all of our blood. You know, the CDC has shown that yeah. uh, of the 290 chemicals that they monitor, you know, over 90% are in everyone's blood that they've ever measured. So there, there was an incorrect assumption in our dated regulatory framework, which was that these things aren't going to get into our body. Well, we know they're getting into our body now. We have data to show that, but we haven't. Uh, updated the way that we think about regulating these sort of uh, chemicals that you interact with on a daily basis. More recently, in the, in the early 2000s, the European Union created the REACH protocol, which is a way of approaching the regulation of chemicals that says, we're going to ask for a lot more information up front. It doesn't necessarily guarantee safety, but it is at least taking that step and uh, taking a more precautionary approach to say that before you put a chemical onto the market, you should gather a minimum amount of 
safety and environmental information. And it's, it's been really helpful because luckily that information is available to the public. So while it's a European uh, regulation, it, most large companies sell across borders. Um, and so now it's the default international regulation for chemicals. And in emerging science, uh, an example that you're focusing on and other, or your colleagues, it's those endocrine disruptors. Those are so pervasive. Talk about what, uh, how, what we're going to do with that. <laughs> Just give it, I'll throw that yeah. to you. It's yeah, huge. this is an important thing to recognize. As you look at the shift from early days of uh, chemistry and chemical pollution that led to things like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, where you had, you know, uh, rivers burning and uh, mass die-offs. Like, the, the chemistry and the concerns have changed. So one of the big concerns that we're worried about in personal care products are a class of compounds called endocrine disruptors. The endocrine system in your body is what regulates all of your hormone levels. So, everyone you can imagine... In everyone, all of your hormones, men, women, um, especially when you think about the role of hormones in human development, so they're critical chemical signals during both in utero and early development. When you're going through puberty, changes in hormones are clearly driving um, a lot of the physical changes. And so as we're seeing changes in puberty, in reproductive health, in developmental health, a lot of this can be tied back to chemicals in our environment that are acting like hormones, like estrogens, like testosterone, like thyroid hormones. Um, and the problem is that in our body, we are very sensitive to signals in the endocrine system. And so our traditional way of thinking about toxicology, which says, you know, the, the dose makes the poison and it's a linear relationship between something harmful and the outcome. Is it doesn't hold true in endocrine science. We know that small levels of these chemicals can have large effects. Um, biology is almost inherently nonlinear. Um, so it might have a different effect at low dose than it does at high dose. And this emerging science is, is a really important thing to follow, and it means we do need to take a more precautionary approach when it comes to this class of chemistry especially in things like personal care products, things that we put on our skin, things that are used by people of reproductive age, that are used by people who are still developing. You know, it's one of the big concerns when you talk to, uh, you know, young parents or others who are, who are of reproductive age trying to, trying to get pregnant. A lot of times the challenges might be coming from, from disruptions to their endocrine system. Let us remember the pesticides that are also a, a factor in introducing those endocrine disruptors and ex exposing all of us to this hazardous material. Absolutely. There, there are a number of pesticides that have also been shown uh, to be endocrine disruptors. Some of the best uh, work on environmental endocrine disruptors are, are actually on chemicals like atrazine, which is uh, used on crops. and It causes frogs and other amphibians actually to become intersex, to have both male and female gonads. There's great work by Professor Hayes here at uh, UC Berkeley showing these effects. Um, and it's really caused a sea change in how we look at environmental endocrine disruption. Well, so, you know, Martin, you know where I'm going to go next is, is Professor Hayes taking his cadre to an interdisciplinary team, so he's sounding the alarm with his research findings. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, Professor Hayes is actually a great example of... Okay. Uh, of a faculty member and of a, of a researcher who not only studies problems of societal importance, but also is willing to take action, is willing to write public comments, has trained a number of students who've gone on to be things like AAAS uh, fellows in Congress. Um, so I think he is an example of a, of a new generation of faculty who do recognize the connection between their basic science, understanding these mechanisms of action, and the need for public education, public comment, public outreach, you know, science in the service of society is what I like to say. Okay. For those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader on Radio KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest is Marty 
Movahill co-founder and managing partner at Safer Made, a mission-driven venture capital fund investing companies and technologies that reduce human exposure to harmful chemicals. We're we're already diving into some what some of those are. So we're going to give listeners a chance to be upbeat about this. There's the solution section here. What you're innovating that is sparing us these hazards that have been ratcheting only upward, in my estimation. Yeah, so we've talked about a lot of the places that these are coming from, the types of chemicals we're concerned about. I think the good news is is that when you look not at chemical producers, but you look at people who are selling products, they aren't wedded to this chemistry. They don't want harmful chemistry. They see this as a liability. They see this as a as a big problem. And I've been really heartened by their willingness, both large brands and small companies, to engage around discussions of how do we guarantee safer chemistry. And when there is new research available, new chemistry coming out, uh, either biological feedstocks that are being turned into safer chemistry or other new chemistries, there's been a hunger and a willingness to adopt despite uh, headwinds from the traditional chemical uh, chemical industry. Uh, So I've been very excited to see companies both large and small, taking steps to remove harmful chemicals, reducing the amount of preservatives in personal care products, moving away from the the chlorinated and brominated ones that persist towards ones that are more biodegradable, towards things that are bio-derived. I've seen things in the textile industry moving away from Teflon chemistry, Teflon-like chemistry that goes into durable water repellency, towards more traditional oil-based chemistries, plant oil-based chemistries, um, moving away from, uh, in the construction industry, petroleum-based feedstocks to bio-based composites to provide strength, durability, and flame retardancy to building materials. I think the important thing in each of these cases is it provides the function consumers are looking for without the harmful chemistry. So you lead with function and you eliminate the source of the harmful chemistry, and then you find mass adoption and, and rapid adoption. So are you seeing that, in, or somebody at SaferMade's watching how the marketplace is adjusting and there is value in the innovative chemis- chemical products? Yeah, so what we do at Safer Made is we talk to some of these large leading brands. In apparel, it's folks like Levi's and Patagonia. In um, the formulated products, it's the methods and seventh generations of the world. And in packaging, um, you know, we talk to retailers like Target and others, um, none of whom are perfect. Let me say that right up front. None of them are perfect, but why we work with these companies is they're willing to talk about the challenges they do see And then we go out and find the innovators that are solving those challenges, make those connections, help provide that early funding so that instead of relying on their traditional supply chain, they can evaluate and adopt the new chemistries that we were just talking about. So we partner with these large companies, not because we believe they're perfect, not because they believe they're perfect, but because they're willing to innovate, they're willing to try new things, um, and we help connect and fund those companies that, that can bring the safer product. You know, I, I saw a, a film about yesterday documenting the presence or lack of the presence of women, women of color in films. And I'm going to get to the point here is that I'm and they there was one journalist that came up with a stamp that says there's enough women that are present in this film in terms mm-hmm. of voices and faces showing and their roles there. So is there a like a safer made stamp that goes on some kind of a product or a manufacturing line that we can start to pick up on? Because you mentioned that some of the chemicals, the was it the BPAs are, you know, slightly changed, and they're still da- dangerous as PBSs or something like that. So is there a, mm-hmm. a safer-made kind of stamp we notice? We can, we can see, register anywhere. Yeah, I'll point you to a couple uh, resources that are already out there. Um, to, just to be clear, Safer Made isn't a certification agency. I we invest in, in innovation. But there are some great certification agencies out there uh, with their own stamps. So one resource that I always like to point people to is the Environmental Working Group. 
They have a database called Skin Deep that can tell you all about your, your personal care, your sunscreen, that sort of stuff. So I highly recommend them. They now have an EWG verified label that you could look for in the store without going to their database. There's another company called Made Safe, different from Safer Made, but they have a certification that's beginning to be used. Cradle to Cradle is another certifying agency that uh, Method uses to, to kind of characterize the safety of their chemistry. And in cleaning products, I think the leading one is probably uh, the Safer Choice label, which is actually uh, done by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The Safer Choice program has been a big success in getting hazardous chemicals out of both industrial and personal kind of home cleaners. So in that space, I look for the, the Safer Choice label. So those are some of the labels and some of the resources that I think are, are very helpful in navigating this world of, of consumer products to find and select the things that are, are best for you and your family. Well, that gives us a lot to work with that we can put those on our three by the short three by five card and put it in our wallet and take it shopping because it's that, that's where we can in the marketplace demand an adjustment to what we've been offered in the marketplace as it is so yeah so marty and what? speaking up yes. is so important not just yes. with your dollars but also also letting your retailers know that you're looking for these options letting your uh, you know, companies know that you want to know what's in their products. So if there isn't an ingredient list on it, you know, calling them up and asking about, you know, the dyes or, you know, materials that are used in, a say, a kid's toy or a kid's product, this pressure is, is what's changing the marketplace. So definitely speaking up, not just with your, your dollars, but also with your voice and, and letting folks know that this is something you're concerned about. Well, either at Safer Made or at your the Center for Green Chemistry, are there public speakers that take the, the lovely talk I heard, the chemistry even new parents will love, are they taking that talk to like every bloody, you know, parent-teacher association all over the kingdom? <laughs> well, maybe not all over the kingdom, but we do have a, a program. There's a great program up here called Bay Area Science and Schools that uh, a lot of our students who come through the Green Chemistry Program do volunteer and take some of this information out, you know, adjusted for the appropriate education level to the, the local schools, um, support the science teachers in integrating this curriculum. There's some great work nationally being done by the Beyond Benign uh, foundation, ah. which is actually out of Massachusetts, and the Green Chemistry Commitment to get this into all of the colleges and then also K-12 uh, around the country, thinking about green chemistry, thinking about biomimicry, how to do things better. So there is a growing movement of, especially of educators, the chemistry educators, who really do want to see this integrated into how we teach chemistry. We still have a ways to go, but there is a, a, a growing group of us working on it. Well, the reason I mentioned like the the PTAs is that chemistry is getting between the mother and her cub. <laughs> so so it seems like a really good fit to to create the sense of urgency and and send them packing with all the kinds of takeaways for to follow through on. Well, you all you have in a, quite a few case studies. Why don't with the time permitting, why don't you offer us one or two if you could? Absolutely. So I think you know. We'll, what we've seen at SaferMade is the areas that are most actively moving are packaging. So if you think about it, a lot of us are concerned about the food we eat, right? Right. But that food is often coming in a package. And many of your listeners, I'm sure, have heard of bisphenol A in uh, cans. And it's also in receipts, in thermal paper, any sort of thermal paper. Every receipt um, we sign when we charge. Exactly. And that is a, that's an example of a, you know, where we've started changing our eating habits, but we need to also think about the ancillary materials that it comes into contact with. And actually, Safer Me is going to be putting out a report later this month okay. all about what we need to do to address the issues like bisphenol A and uh, plastic pollution in the ocean. You know, you're an oceanfront community down there moving away from plastic, but making sure as we move to plastics that we move to things that don't have bisphenol A, that we don't have phthalates, that don't have polyvinyl chloride. So 
it's a really important area where the growing um, awareness of these chemicals of concern in plastics, in paper products, and in metal products, there isn't one solution, but we need to be demanding better alternatives. So a great example for the can lining, some of the cans have been replaced with BPS, which is bisphenol S. It's a similar endocrine disruptor to BPA. Others have actually gone back a generation in coatings and are using uh, vegetable oil coatings on the cans. Um, so Eden Organic is an example of a company that it still makes canned beans that uses the safer chemistry rather than the regrettable substitution. Similarly, we, looking in pulp fiber, uh, you may notice if you go to Whole Foods that they're no longer giving those paper clamshells out. And part of the reason for that is that there were there was Teflon-like chemistry even in that paper. And so we're supporting a number of folks that are looking for the alternatives to that perfluorinated chemistry, that Teflon-like chemistry. Because paper in general is something that has a, a good, you know, breaks down in the environment, has a good life cycle, but uh, not if you have to use harmful chemistries to make it productive. So within each of the areas that you see packaging materials, we're looking at both the coating and the base material to find preferable alternatives. Um, and I think that because of people's awareness around food and food safety, this is a great place to focus consumer advocacy. There's a lot of movement going on right now. So, you know, don't accept that uh, styrofoam to-go container. Don't accept that uh, number six to-go container, which is still polystyrene. Think about the safer alternatives. Um, and, you know, when possible, use reusable things because those are often made out of better materials, whether it's metal or glass or uh, ceramic that don't have some of the, the harmful chemistry bleaching out of it. So I wanted to back you up a little bit with the, you called the paper clamshells had some kind of a presence of plastic. Yeah. So what ex- yeah. I'm trying to think there's a very, it looks plastic, but I'm told it's really a paper. Which, what is the, the not so benign paper clamshell that you could describe for us so we, we know it and we avoid it? Yeah, I think the important thing is asking the people that are giving it to you because you can't tell by just looking. Ah, there you go. That's so, what you were saying in your lecture. You, as exactly. a chemist, need to keep asking. You're not always getting it. But anyway, so we ask them, and what if they don't know? That's where we, the consumer, weigh in and say, well, A, you need to know, and you need to know the right one kind of thing. Exactly. And, you know, five, ten people do that, and I promise they're going to start asking the question of their suppliers who are then going to figure out, are they using the right one or the wrong one? There was a small study done here in Berkeley by the Green Science Policy Institute going door-to-door in, you know, the area around the university uh, testing for the perfluorinated chemicals in the paper products. They found it in some, they didn't find it in others, and almost every case, once they brought those results, they didn't, you know, tell a big story and get everyone scared. They brought those results to the business owners and said, hey, do you know about this? Here's some alternatives that you can consider. So there's a great resource from the Center for Environmental Health, CEH, that talks about all the paper products that can be purchased without these perfluorinated chemicals in them. Um, so I think it's, a, it's something that the city of San Francisco is working on, the Center for Environmental Health is working on, and I think all of your local folks would be willing to because there are, there are alternatives that are safer. And so raising that awareness is the most important thing you can do. And you don't have to worry about, you know, let's, I like to, to help people. These chemicals are bad and we want to reduce our exposure to them. But, you know, if you eat a to-go lunch off of one of these things once, it's not going to be a huge harm to you long-term. These are cumulative exposures. It's about reducing it over time. It's not about, you know, stressing about every potential exposure. I I like to kind of put it within the context of eating healthy food, right? You want to have healthy materials. That doesn't mean to go and occasionally have a cookie. But the convenience of the packaging is, is, you know, can be put into that context. So as we uh, try to ask, yes, thank, yes, exactly. Well, I've I've been asking different questions. I guess I've <laughs> there's a roster here I'm dragging with me. And so as we're uh, drawing down on our time to conclude, how is Safer Made coalescing with the standard bearers 
leaders in policy and advocacy. I mean, we're dealing with the shutdown, of a partial shutdown of government, which ratcheting downward some uh, gaps in research, in regulation, enforcement, all those kinds of things. So that makes us even more feeling uh, vulnerable, you know, as as constituents. So what kind of coalescing can you tell us as you conclude? Yeah, and you know, you bring up some of the reasons why SaferMade is focused on supporting innovative new companies, not relying on regulation, not re- relying on government uh, movement, because it's just been too slow. Historically, it's taken us 20 years from the time we find a problem to the time we can regulate it, and that's just too slow. We need strong oversight in government and uh, NGOs to keep the moving the bar up, but Safer Made's role in the ecosystem is to really be looking forward to finding those things that are inherently safer so that they don't use any of the chemistries we've been talking about today that are harmful. We take a class approach so that we avoid any regrettable substitution. So we are always looking for things that not only aren't the bad actors that we know today, but they're not the chemical cousins of the bad actors we know today. Um, and so we want to be providing the suite of alternatives so as advocates, as consumers, and as the government do take action, that they already have inherently safer alternatives uh-huh. out there in the marketplace. Well, and you mentioned, um, it's, I'm sorry, and, and you mentioned in preparation that there's actually policies being moved out in, on the state level. We can call out those states as we're wrapping this whole thing up. Absolutely. The state of California has been doing a good job with their Safer Consumer Products Act. It's part of uh, the California EPA. Washington has been doing a lot to ban some of these harmful chemicals that we've talked about. Perfluorinated plastics, straws has made the, the news there. Michigan actually has been doing a fair amount uh, around the Great Lakes region to reduce pollution to that water source, that fresh water source. Um, and similarly, Massachusetts has a great industrial program that helps local manufacturers uh, substitute uh, harmful chemistries and solvents with much safer ones. That's called uh, TURI, the Toxic Use Reduction Institute. So we're seeing the right models being adopted. You know, that's that's the the idea of our system, right? Our a system of states is that the states can be testing grounds for what could be future federal regulation. And I think in all of those states, we are seeing what this could look like and hopefully will look like in the future. I guess we could look at um, the onion or the the lampoon. They could have done a, a satire, a parody of The Graduate and where the 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 businessman pulls the the graduate aside and instead he should have said in the 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 future is in plastics he could just say the future it's in toxics as you're saying <laughs> well marty i i really exactly. enjoyed it was a real privilege to have you bring this to our attention thanks for taking the time thank you claudius Thank you so much. My guest was Marty Mulvihill, co-founder and managing partner at Safer Made. As I said, a mission-driven venture capital fund investing companies. And you heard him talk about how these researchers, physical scientists, moving out of the silo. They're working with every single discipline to make sure we get the message and we're better consumers. We'll be right back after a station break to talk with John Spiak, director and curator of the Grand Central Art Center. Lots going on there. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Plastics. was a track from Christian Sands. His track was uh, her song on Facing Dragons. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is John Spiak. He is the director and chief curator of the Grand Central Art Center, which he joined in 2011. Previously, he was the curator of the Arizona State University Art Museum for 17 years. His curatorial emphasis on contemporary art and society focuses on works in 
social practice and video alive and well there at the center. John was acting curator in charge of the Arizona State University Art Museum Residency Series Social Studies originating project by uh, Julianne Schwartz, Ken Lundewer, Jillian McDonald, Josh Green, Gregory Sale, and Jennifer Nelson. I want to call them all out because I know somebody's going to know some of them. In 1997, he founded and was acting director for 15 years, the annual Arizona State University Art Museum Short Film and Video Festival. He's curated over 100 solo and group exhibitions, working directly with artists including Pipilotti Rist, Shireen Neshat, Brent Green, Tony De Los Reyes, Jillian McDonald and Adam Chodsko. His projects have received support from the, all the big ones, the British Council, Metabolic Studio, Polish Cultural Institute, National Endowment for the Arts, the CEC Arts Link, and the Andy Warhol Foundation for Visual Arts. Well, that'll come up too when we're talking about a, a massive project underway. John Spiak currently serves on the editorial board for the Journal Museum and Social Issues Advisory Board of the Social Practice Art in L.A. and Board of Community Engagement. He completed his B.A. in Sociology at Cal State Dominguez Hills. John is part of the power couple he's formed with his wife, Cassandra Koblenz, who's appeared several times as curator of, as, several times on this show as curator of the Orange County Museum of Art. He comes to us today from his corner office in Santa Ana. Welcome to Ask a Leader, John Spiak. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good having you on, and I'm, I just want to jump right in to what is now there. We're going to, let's start with the, the installation that's going to close probably the earliest, it's David Pulitzer's Text Neck. Uh, oh, it opened in the fall. It's there until January 13th. So, folks, this is going to this is going to put a little fire under all of you. And um, some of the folks in uh, Text Neck look kind of familiar. Do I know some of them from the UCI Claire Trevor School of the Arts? You might know some of them from UCI. Yes, I think uh, one or two of the participants in that project were involved with UCI. Yeah. So, and I have to say, on my way to the station today, text neck was in spades. There's a lot of that with the people that were students that are fresh off of their long winter break, and that they were buried in their text. I had to really sort of, you know, swerve around them on my bike commute to the station. So, (laughs) so tell us about what text necks do, and let us know too. Give us an opportunity to know just how tactile we can make our visit of text neck by David Pulitzer. Sure. So David Pulitzer was one of our visiting artists in residence. We have an international artist in residency program here at Grand Central Art Center where we invite artists in. Uh, we don't ask for a project when they arrive. We really want them to kind of experience the place and really? develop a project with Grand Central. And there's no time limits as well, so we kind of leave it open-ended so the creative process really flows in an authentic way. Um, no pressures on the artist that way. And we also don't have any issues at the institution that need to be solved, so we don't put any demands on them up front. So David came, and he had been looking at the cell phone use, how people use cell phones in today's, today's society. And he started with interviews of people, asking them how they use cell phones and other daily use, um, and got anecdotes and great stories about cell phone use, and then worked that into kind of a narrative and then he did an open call out to local individuals to be participants or actors in this video that he was going to create based on the stories that he had received. And then he uh, filmed around town in different locations around throughout downtown Santa Ana uh, to create this work called TextNeck. And TextNeck is actually based on a medical situation that is occurring in individuals now where the back muscles of your neck get pulled because of looking down at the text for long periods of time yes. or laying in the bed while you look at your cell phone. And so it's actually a medical term called text neck, which is a, is a real thing. And so if you come to the exhibition, you'll see a two-channel video. It's projected on the wall and on the floor. Yes. Uh, which the floor gives you that kind of downward look that you have when you're looking at a, a cell phone. And ah, there are why. these pods that he's created, and the pods are lined with this, it's almost like an aluminum foil. Uh, it's a mylar material that blocks out cell phone, radio waves, uh, any kind of communication if they were completely sealed. The ones in the space are not completely sealed. They have open fronts and open bottoms. But 
he did originally create one when he was in residence that was completely sealed oh, and asked goodness. people to spend up to 12 hours in the space alone without access to, you know, both their own technology, but also being bombarded with technology that our bodies constantly receive that we don't realize. So I I saw them, I call them little hangers. Yeah, they're like, they almost look like the blimp hangers in Tustin. A little hanger. And so, and we're, as patrons, visitors, we're allowed to go in there? You can go in them, you can sit on them. There's one that's two stories. You can climb up on the top and hang out in there and just enjoy the show and watch the video and, and kind of experience a moment of escape. So at, at the first Saturday, I, uh, that was the, the first opportunity, I guess, people could do this. But was, was it pretty hopping uh, first Saturday of the month last week? Surprisingly, even with the rain, we had about 2,000 oh. people through our doors that night. Wow. Um, it was really an engaged evening, and the space was packed. People were sitting all over the space and sitting on the floors and engaging with all our exhibitions that night. Wow. What a night. Yeah. I, yeah, I wasn't able to get there. Sorry about that. No but, worries. No but worries. yeah, so that's wonderful. And then the next, well, speaking of enclosed spaces, what we have to talk about, it's an ongoing installation, Lucas Morgida. None of this is real. He's been, he's been doing some amazing things with all kinds of media in the sort of opening area of the, the center. And so it started last summer, and actually I've seen that a couple of times, and it's sort of, now, now there's that kind of rolling video of many of the visits which it's it, I don't know I can say it's funny isn't it that's a, that's permitted there's a tongue-in-cheek in all that for sure okay for sure and yeah. so then uh, then there's that speaking of closed spaces though he there is that one little kind of a walk-in it's a what is it like two by two feet totally darkened with these lovely this lovely I'm not going to blow anything more but so that's going to be there how long that that particular He's going to perform that one more time to that will be up for the first Saturday in February uh, and then he'll February move on 2nd. to a new project uh, for March. Okay. So his residency continues until March or will it be on beyond? He's going to be, so he's been in residence with us for a year now, and we've just invited him to continue his residency for another year. Oh, good. Um, and so he lives on site, and he's taken over our storefront studio space, and his projects are really based on jobs he's had in the past and the research he's done at those jobs. So. The current project is based on his career as a locksmith that he did for seven years. Oh, right. Well, he cert- he knows how to be an artist. He's got the artist sensibility with, you know, this kind of very, uh, I don't know, kind of self-effacing, uh, interactive, um, uh, delightful kind of thing. And so, and one, I, the, one of the set first Saturdays of the month I went to, you and, and actually you were the one pointed out that gave me the backstory at the time that he had a court room artist sketching how people were interacting reacting to Louis, Lucas Magida's installation. Yeah, he's been thinking about documentation of his work and with performance or interactive elements of a, of a project a lot of times it's recorded for video and that's the documentation um, but he's been thinking about you know as an artist how do you sustain your your career and that has to be off of sales a lot of times how do you sell a, a item from your work and so he, uh, you know, videos are hard to sell. So he hired a court illustrator, a person who goes into a courtroom when video cameras aren't allowed in the courtroom and documents the action. Uh, and they sat in the space the entire night and documented his engagements and his performance and created this whole series of, of drawings that document one night of his, his interactions. And so where do those, uh, they're not up right this minute that I know is last Saturday, but did they, how did that, where are those? You know, I haven't talked to him about that yet. You brought that up again, and I kind of forgot that he had done that. And so I'm sure those will show up in a future project. He's he's realizing a project right now for March, the first Saturday of March will be our big 20th anniversary celebration event. And we'll get to that. And so uh, he's planning a special kind of interaction performance for that evening. So those might appear then. Okay. And there is also, and we, we talked in your introduction about your your video work and collaboration and curating, and Mandana, Mandana Mohadam, uh-huh. tell us a little bit. Uh, her piece is called Exodus. Maybe a, a brief bit about her background and what... It's a, an extraordinary loop, and tell us a little bit about her, and then I want to mention a few things that came to me about that. Yeah, so she's an Iranian-born artist who 
because of situations. Her, you know, her family was, father was involved with certain uh, practices in Iran that were, were seen as kind of maybe against what the government's will was at that time. And so they had to leave their home nation. And through that exodus, she has been thinking about what it means to, to have to leave and be uh, an immigrant in another nation, to migrate, and the work is looking at that in a contemporary realm. So a sea of luggage, there's luggage that's floating in the ocean, and it's a real metaphor for what's going on in the United States right now. Oh, and John, the metaphors, I, I, there are so many. There, I want to call out a, a few, and, and I don't think I blow any kind of a surprises there, but there's what I noticed there, the ties, there's tie, invisible ties keeping those bags together. I thought that was a powerful one metaphor. Yeah, and, and also the bags themselves. Correct, you know, Some of the yes. bags are, are labeled as you know, high-end designer bags. Correct. Some are labeled as more like athletic quick-grab bags. So, and the shopper bag. And the shopper bag. So it's that whole idea that Everybody. Know, the diverse group of individuals that have to leave nations for certain reasons are, are varying. And you know, we don't think about that. And, and you know, right now with the rhetoric about criminalization and, and only violent people trying to get to this nation, you know, it's, it's false narrative. And that's what we need to start to change in our society as a whole. And that's what art can do. Art can be an open place for civil conversation in our society. One more symbol I want to call out, and before we go into the next hours, that that there's not always a horizon in view in this video. Yeah, it's really amazing. So, and that will be there until her ex her installation will be there till February seventeenth. So, folks, we got to keep you got to keep that February two will be the first Saturday of next month. But you're we'll, we'll go over the hours and that kind of thing as well. And I'll keep them posted on the podcast summary too for people to refer back to. Then there is Cecilia Lopez's traffic. Um, that's it's on your website. You say it's gone in December. It's still there. So wh- how long is that there, and what's going to take its place? That will place? be up until this Sunday. Oh, until this Sunday. Oh, yeah, until okay. this Sunday. We, we extended it a month because of the holiday. Okay. Um, and Cecilia Lopez, Santa Ana, born and raised, uh, an amazing young artist. She is still actually a senior in, at Modern Day High School right now. Wow. Yeah, and she approached us. Normally we wouldn't show high school students you know, or early student work. But she approached us with such an amazing uh, kind of proposal. She knew what she was talking about. She knew the conversation about the topics that she was dealing with. She's been involved with the topic of human trafficking since she was in uh, seventh grade. Oh, my goodness. Uh, She's not a victim of it in any way, but just it became a topic for her to explore and to help address and raise awareness of human trafficking in Orange County. And so she got heavily involved, and at the opening reception, we had a panel discussion that had a district attorney and uh, a former individual that worked with Orangewood Home. And we had a great conversation about, you know, the scary situations that are occurring in Orange County uh, on human trafficking. You know, to find out that most young, mostly women, that are kind of seduced into human trafficking are being done so at Disneyland or um, the Irvine spectrum was kind of shocking. You know, that, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, you think of you know, Disneyland, I could see it because there's so many crowds and it seems like you know, the young people go there on their own, but Irvine spectrum was really surprising to me. Well, for those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is John Spiak. He's director and chief curator of Grand Central Arts Center in beautiful downtown Santa Ana. And there we're we're going through what the artists in residence are now the installations that are leaving them they're going out the door folks so you've got through sunday to catch one of them before it goes and then successive weeks and months uh, some of them so i i'm afraid we'll just leave it at that what there will be something that will take its pl- cecilia lopez's piece after this sunday i want you to have an opportunity to talk about that you mentioned in the first saturday in march is going to be the when the 20th anniversary for the Grand Central Arts Center. Full Blown will be celebrated. Why don't you tell us what you what might be happen? We can look forward to then, as well as uh, what's this whole twelve episode serial broadcast opera going on? Sure, but before that, I, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't mention quickly. This Saturday, we have a walking tour with uh, an artist collective named Cognate Collective, and they've been in residence with us for over four years. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's Amy Sanchez and Michelle Diaz, 
And Amy just recently graduated from UCI with her degree, her master's degree in curatorial studies. And they are incredible artists that have really been embedded in our community. And they're doing a walking tour of downtown Santa Ana with audio and recordings. And it's an incredible walk. So that happens at 1 p.m. this Saturday, January 12th. So I just wanted to get that in. Absolutely. Thank you. So the first Saturday of March, actually February 28th is when we mark officially our 20th anniversary. That's when we opened the doors, 1999. So we thought the first Saturday of March seemed like the closest date to that. So that night we're going to do a whole series of performances. Uh, We'll have special VIP events uh, to celebrate 20 years of this place. You know, it's an amazing institution that I think is unique in the United States. We are a joint venture with the city of Santa Ana. You know, the building was here in 1922, built uh, in an, in the mid-90s. It was kind of abandoned. And uh, two pioneer leaders in the community, Mike McGee and Don Cribb, made a pitch to the city that there could be an arts community in downtown Santa Ana. And the city spent some money and renovated the building and then turned the keys over to Grand Central Arts Center through a lease agreement to program the space. And... We're going to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate the history of the institution. We're going to try to, you know, talk about how we're moving forward in new ways for the next 20 years and just have a real celebration that night. So we're kind of excited about that. Wow. And I'm going to I just have to post a link to include the, the, the 12-episode serial broadcast of Vireo uh, developed by composer Lisa Bilawa. And it's it's ongoing. People can stream it on your website, which is going to also be on the, the podcast summary. And tucked into this compound of a Grand Central Art Center is the Wayward Artist with the second season starting April 12th and goes through November. You guys feed off of each other at all? Yeah, we do. They, yeah. They've been really great, and uh, we're, we're happy to have them. You know, there are a lot of Cal State Fullerton alums, and we're really happy to have them in our, our space. They've become really active, and they're selling out all their shows. So Yeah, they are. They are. So, well, I can pass on here that the Grand Central Arts Center, it's right there on that, it's off of the, the plaza, it's at 125 North Broadway in Santa Ana, and the hours I'm going to post and the number to call, first Saturday of the month, uh, expands those hours, and so the next one is, is February 2nd, as I was mentioning. This is all the time. I'm so sorry, we, you have so much more to tell us, but it's such a pleasure to talk with you today, John. Pleasure talking with you as well, Claudia, and thank you for having me today. Oh, Okay, well, thank you. So my guest was John Spiak. He's the director and chief curator of Grand Central Art Station in Santa Ana. And we're going to close out with a track by Clementine. Cornerstone is the name of the track. So as we're going out, I just want to let you know what we're going to do on the, the next week. I'm going to have on. Wiley Aitken, he's an Orange County trial attorney, and he's a local rainmaker in political, cultural, and educational realms to ponder the very interesting developments afoot in local politics already. So then Jennifer Muir-Bidwin is a labor leader and journalist, and she'll talk about her role as the preeminent organizer of this year's Orange County Women's March. She'll let us know what to expect, the third annual taking place in Santa Ana, January 19. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, and a shout out to loved ones in Memphis. This voice, this particular voice, yes, you've heard it before, before, and so don't you dare tell it, don't you dare tell it otherwise.